RipperCast presents 10 Weeks in Whitechapel, an audio series based on the blog 10 Weeks in Whitechapel, written and narrated by Carl Kopak, and featuring the voices of Catherine Amin, Paul Begg, Neil R.A. Bell, Andrew Firth, Michael Hawley, Philip Hutchison, Steve McDermott, John Reese, Allie Ryder, Adam Stevens, Callum Williams, Gareth Williams, Ian Wilson, and Keeley Wilson. Week 7 Aaron, Montague, Michael, and Francis, the police suspects. Come Christmas 1888, it was generally considered that the Whitechapel murders were finally at an end. Life and the daily struggle continued, and the women who sold their bodies day in day out in order to survive gradually stopped soliciting in packs as the need for security lessened. On the 26th of January 1889, James Munro told the Home Office that the amount of police on the streets of Whitechapel was to be reduced. Of course, there was still no conviction, but the gospel of the time spoke of the murderer killing himself due to realising the insanity of his actions in Miller's Court. After all, what else was there him to do? If his deeds escalated in their fury or curiosity, they could not be taken any further. It wouldn't be too far to suggest that either capture or suicide would be the next step. This was all speculation, of course, but as the months rolled on and the relative peace descended, there was only one question to be answered, and it's the same one we have today. Just who was Jack the Ripper? One senior official, writing in 1910, had a definite opinion on the matter. For I may say at once that undiscovered murders are rare in London, and the Jack the Ripper crimes are not within that category. And if the police here had powers such as the French police possess, the murderer would have been brought to justice. Scotland Yard can boast that not even the subordinate officers of the department will tell tales out of school, and it would ill become me to violate the unwritten rule of the service. So I will only add here that the Jack the Ripper letter, which is preserved in the police museum at New Scotland Yard, is the creation of an enterprising London journalist. Having regard to the interest attaching to this case, I am almost tempted to disclose the identity of the murderer and of the pressman who wrote the letter above referred to, but no public benefit would result from such a course, and the traditions of my old department would suffer. I will merely add that the only person who had ever had a good view of the murderer unhesitatingly identified the suspect the instant he was confronted with him. But he refused to give evidence against him. In saying that he was a Polish Jew, I am merely stating a definitely ascertained fact, and my words are meant to specify race, not religion, for it would outrage all religious sentiment to talk of the religion of a loathsome creature whose utterly unmentionable vices reduced him to a lower level than that of the brute. Yes, no lesser personage than Sir Robert Anderson. And there it is. Those were the words he used. The Assistant Commissioner of the CID, speaking 22 years after the murders, stating once and for all that Scotland Yard had got their man. Case closed. We can all go home. Cheers, mate. What's that? You want further evidence? Okay. Here's son Melvin McNaughton, the Assistant Chief Constable of the CID in 1889. He'd replaced Anderson in 1903. 
Although the Whitechapel murderer, in all probability, put an end to himself soon after the Dorset Street affair in November 1888, certain facts pointing to this conclusion were not in possession of the police till some years after I became a detective officer. Yep, he's singing from the same hymn sheet there. It took a while, but the CID had the ripper under lock and key. All wrapped up them, surely. It's just a pity that Anderson didn't name his man. But there was further intrigue to come. In 1894, nearly six years after the murders, the Sun newspaper, a rag used to printing scurrilous rumours to this day, claimed that a man called Thomas Cutbush, who had been arrested in 1891 for stabbing women in the backside, was the ripper. McNaughton was distinctly displeased at this suggestion and wrote a memorandum to the Home Office, citing that his candidacy as a legitimate suspect was bogus at best. Firstly, it was unlikely that the Ripper, given the depravity of Miller's court, would reduce the violence of his attacks. Go from that level of violent debauchery to simply stabbing soft tissue nearly three years later was dubious to say the least. What's more, according to McNaughton, there were better contenders in the police files. No one ever saw the Whitechapel murderer. Many homicidal maniacs were suspected, but no shadow of proof could be thrown on any one. I may mention the cases of three men, any one of whom would have been more likely than Cutbush to have committed this series of murders. 1. A Mr. M. J. Druitt, said to be a doctor and of good family, who disappeared at the time of the Miller's Court murder, and whose body, which was said to have been upwards of a month in the water, was found in the Thames on 31st of December, or about seven weeks after that murder. He was sexually insane, and from private information I have little doubt, but that his own family believed him to have been the murderer. 2. Kuzminski, a Polish Jew and resident in Whitechapel. This man became insane owing to many years' indulgence in solitary vices. He had a great hatred of women, especially of the prostitute class, and had strong homicidal tendencies. He was removed to a lunatic asylum about March 1889. There were many circumstances connected with this man which made him a strong suspect. 3. Michael Ostrog, a Russian doctor and a convict, who was subsequently detained in a lunatic asylum as a homicidal maniac. This man's antecedents were of the worst possible type, and his whereabouts at the time of the murders could never be ascertained. Hang on, what did he say? No one ever saw the Whitechapel murderer. Yes, they did. Robert Anderson talks of not only seeing him, but confronting him with a witness, and lengthy discussions about possible court cases. Surely he'd let McNaughton in on that, wouldn't he? It seems a bit harsh not to let the then current assistant commissioner in on the arrest of the century, and then let him make a fool of himself by discussing, not stating, three better alternatives to Cutbush. They can't both be informed. Actually, a closer examination would show that both men were not quite as on the ground as you'd suppose. Anderson's predecessor, James Monroe, retired on the final day of August 1888 the day of the first canonical victim in Books Row. Anderson took over, but hadn't had a holiday for years and was on the brink of exhaustion, so took a well-earned break from the 8th of September, coincidentally the date of the second murder in Hanbury Street. He was still away during the double event, so he was only in situ for the fifth and final murder. 
Likewise, McNaughton only joined the investigation from 1889, and by that time the search was more or less winding down. As stated earlier, Munro had reduced the number of policemen in E1, and Aberline was already working on different cases by then, so McNaughton can hardly claim to be amongst the cut and thrust of the atrocities. What's more, he wasn't really a policeman. The assistant chief commissioner job was his first in the force. His previous employment was overseeing his family's tea plantations in India. But let's return to Anderson's claim. I will merely add that the only person who had ever had a good view of the murderer unhesitatingly identified the suspect the instant he was confronted with him, but he refused to give evidence against him. What does this mean? Was it really possible to have a maniac like Jack in their power only to fail to make good on it? Why would a witness be reluctant to convict such a man? Who was the suspect? For that matter, who was the witness? So many questions. The answer was only discovered years later. Donald Swanson was Chief Inspector of the CID at the time and on good terms with Anderson. He was put in charge of the case from the 1st of September to the 6th of October 1888, by which time his friend took over the reins. In 1987, Swanson's grandson found Swanson's copy of Anderson's The Lighter Side of My Official Life and discovered something astonishing scribbled into the margin of Chapter 9, the section dealing with Anderson's claims. They read, Because the suspect was also a Jew, and also because his evidence would convict the suspect and witness would be the means of murder or being hanged, which he did not wish to be left on his mind. And after this identification which suspect knew, no other murder of this kind took place in London. After the suspect had been identified at the seaside home where he had been sent by us with difficulty in order to subject him to identification and he knew he was identified. On suspect's return to his brother's house in Whitechapel, he was watched by police, city CID, by day and night. In a very short time, the suspect, with his hands tied behind his back, was sent to Stepney Workhouse and then to Colney Hatch and died shortly afterwards. Kosminski was the suspect. Swanson, like McNaughton, names a Kosminski, though neither man gave a first name. The implication is clear. Kosminski was Jack the Ripper. But they could do nothing about it as the witness, also Jewish, did not want his death on his conscience. You can imagine the ruction this caused when they were discovered. There are major problems with this scenario, though. Firstly, would the police be so easily deterred at the reluctance of anyone to convict their public enemy number one? To merely shrug their shoulders and simply make the best of a bad situation seems unfeasible somehow. Secondly, if the man was insane and his incarceration at Colney Hatch Asylum assumes that he was, wouldn't it be more likely that he would be imprisoned under a diminished responsibility charge rather than hanged? If that's the case, why would the witness not offer a statement in a court of law? Surely the man, having had a good look at him as he was about to do his work, wouldn't want to see more lives endangered. It's the final point with which I personally struggle. Are we really to believe that the police had Jack the Ripper in their cells and then sent him back onto the streets? I'm reminded of the scene in the film Dirty Harry, where the murderer, Scorpio, walks on a technicality, and Callahan follows him indiscreetly. Even if the Met watched him day and night, how would it stop the madman from attacking his own family members or escaping altogether? What if there's another victim after Mary Kelly? Had Kodminsky escaped? How could the police possibly justify returning him to his family and hope that his brother would sufficiently cow him when the urge to kill returned? What of the men who trailed him? Is it possible that every single one of them kept quiet about who they were following, and why? Then there's this. 
No other murder of this kind took place in London. Someone should tell Alice Mackenzie that, or Francis Coles. As for the identification, if Swanson and Anderson knew about this in 1889, why wasn't McNaughton invited? Unless he's writing a memo to the Home Office for no reason other than to chide the tabloid press, he clearly had no idea what was going on, despite being the assistant chief constable at the time. Something was amiss. So what of the witness? The key point in what became known as the Swanson marginalia was that the only reliable witness was, like the killer, a Jew. This immediately led out George Hutchison and his astrakhan man, despite Abilene believing him to such a degree that he took him on the Whitechapel walking tour to find the murderer. True, there were other witnesses, particularly around Berner Street, but... The only person who had ever had a good view of the murderer... ...was Jewish. We can only speculate to this, as neither Anderson nor Swanson name him. However, there are two obvious candidates... Joseph Lavender would seem to be the favourite, as he was called in by the yard to identify James Thomas Sadler, the arrested suspect in the Coles murder. But he said upon being interviewed that he would probably not recognise the man he saw talking to Catherine Eddowes near Bicester Square. It therefore seems more likely that Anson's witness is Israel Schwartz, who, as we know from the Strive murder, looked his man in the face. Schwartz seems a reliable witness, particularly as he admitted his cowardice in running away down Berner Street when he saw what was going on. Others, especially in those days, would be tempted to build their part up, or, say, invent a man to explain why they were waiting outside a prostitute's room for 45 minutes in the rain. But Schwartz's lack of ego makes him more reliable than most. If Schwartz is the witness, he almost certainly saw this strides murderer. But does that necessarily mean that he saw the Ripper? Personally, I've never been convinced that the man who killed her was Jack for many reasons the lack of mutilation, the different type of knife, the location, and the amount of people nearby. Elizabeth Stride's murderer seems to be more of a hit-and-run man rather than someone who needed to tear his victim apart, but I digress. So who was Kuzminski? We know that he was taken to the Seaside House, a police convalescent home in Brighton, for identification before a spell in Stepney Workhouse and ultimately Colney Hatch Asylum in or around March 1889, before dying not long after but is there any more we can learn about him? It's here where ripperologists are worth their weight in gold. Step forward Martin Fido, writer and broadcaster, who researched all existing records from those areas and times. You'd think that finding a Kosminski who lived in Whitechapel and went to two specific places would be easy, and candidates numerous, wouldn't you? In fact, he only found one, an Aaron Kosminski of Greenfield Street, Whitechapel. Greenfield Street is almost opposite Berner Street. This begins to look promising. Aaron Kuzminski was born in Klodawa in Poland and moved to London in 1881 or 1882, where he became a barber in Whitechapel. On the 12th of July 1890, he was admitted into the Mile End Old Town Workhouse, not Stepney, for three days, and returned on the 4th of February 1891, before moving on to Colney Hatch, where he stayed until 1894. He was then transferred to Leavesden Asylum near Abbots Langley in Hertfordshire. Rather than being affected by a violent psychosis, although there is talk of him threatening a sister with a knife, but the only other tale of his ferocity involves him throwing a chair. Hardly ripper-esque, though he may have been more feeble at that stage. His illness took the form of hearing voices, or refusing food from other people, preparing to eat scraps from the ground, and refusing to wash. The record showed that he was insane due to self-abuse, or as Anderson puts it, Utterly unmentionable vices, which probably means masturbation. Does this sound like Jack the Ripper? 
Well, if he is the man to whom McNaughton and Swanson refer, there are again many issues. The main one being of Aaron's death. Swanson maintains that he died shortly after his transfer to Colney Hatch, but Aaron did not die until 1919, at the grand old age of 53. In fact, Kosminski was still alive when Swanson wrote his marginalia. It may also be remembered that the broad-shouldered man Schwartz saw assaulting Elizabeth Stride shouted Lipsky at either Schwartz or the second man with the pipe. Whether it was a term of abuse or possibly the man's other name is not known, though Abilene searched for anyone called Lipsky in the area and found none. At the risk of starting a tongue twister, would a Jew shout a Jewish slur at a fellow Jew? Aaron spoke mostly Yiddish, so there was a discrepancy there as the Ripper was able to charm his victims into yards and dark squares. I suppose it's not impossible if they just wanted his money, though. In 2014, Russell Edwards claimed to have identified Kosminski as the Ripper, categorically and absolutely, through mitochondrial DNA evidence. He had bought Catherine Eddowes' shawl and handed it to a professor to carry out testing after he tracked down the descendants of both Kosminski's sister and Eddowes. The match was reported at 99.2% and then 100%. However, there are some doubts about the testing. As for McNaughton's other suspects, the M.J. Druitt refers to Montague John Druitt. He was not, as McNaughton suggested, a doctor, but a barrister from Dorset. He was also an assistant schoolmaster at the George Valentine Border School in Blackheath, as he needed a second career to supplement his income. Three weeks after the Mary Kelly murder, Druitt was sacked from the school. This has not only left him without a job, but also accommodation, though he was far from destitute. It's not known why he was dismissed under the rumours of homosexuality, which was a crime at the time, or something more sinister involving the pupils. In any case, he disappeared in December 1888, a month after the final murder. On New Year's Eve 1888, a waterman discovered through its body in the Thames at Chiswick. The body was weighed down with four large stones in each pocket, so it seemed the location was a deliberate choice rather than the case of him being washed down river. He had been in the water for roughly a month. Among his possessions was a cheque for £50 and some £16 in gold, which is an extraordinary amount of cash to carry around. Also, a first-class half-season rail ticket from Blackheath to London, and a second half-return ticket from Hammersmith to London, dated the 1st of December. The gold alone was worth the equivalent of £1,500 today. The coroner returned a verdict of suicide by drowning while in an unsound state of mind. Insanity ran in his family. His mother was institutionalised only five months earlier, while his grandmother and sister committed suicide. His aunt, too, attempted it. It's telling that he's recorded the following in a note to his brother shortly before his death. Since Friday, I felt that I was going to be like mother, and the best thing for me was to die. Yes, but would this make him Jack the Ripper? The only connection between Druitt and the murders is that he put an end to himself at the end of November following the last murder, and shortly before the killing stopped. There is no positive suggestion of him being in Whitechapel at all, other than in his chambers at the Inner Temple, which was nearby. As for his skills as a murderer, it's been said that he could have picked up some techniques from his father, William Druitt, who was a local surgeon, but that's hardly damning. McNaughton hints at private information, as well as a family rumour, but it's baffling why he should be included in the list, and indeed the more realistic serial killer than Thomas Cookbush, who had at least had a history of attacking women. Druitt lived in Blackheath on the south side of the Thames where there were no overnight trains to central London. The last train from Blackheath left at 12.25am and the first at 5.10am. 
Are we led to believe that Druitt killed Eddowes at 1.40am and then walked around with a kidney, uterus and apron for a while before dumping the cloth and writing on a wall? He then would have taken the unusual escape path of walking east, away from the city of London and the safety of his chambers at the Inner Temple, towards Dorset Street, etc. Would he have then doubled back to wait for his first train? Furthermore, as Philip Sugden points out, records show Druitt playing cricket at Blackheath at 11.30am on the morning of the 8th of September, just six hours after the discovery of Annie Chapman's disembowelled corpse in Hanbury Street. We can assume that the murderer had been awake all night, and if this was Druitt, he would have to play a long cricket match with little sleep, and let's not forget Annie's uterus somewhere back in his rooms. This seems largely implausible to me. When the McNaughton Memorandum came to light, Lady Abba Conway, his daughter, was keen to ensure that no one mentioned in it would be libelled. In fact, for a long time, Druitt's name was reduced to just his initials. This leads me to reveal a bugbear which I have in the field of suspectology. One of the saddest things about Ripperology and the search for suspects is that every name which comes up does so with a slander. It seems bitterly unfair that such a sad man as Druitt, who led a tortured life, should go to the grave with only a serial killer accusation to accompany his name through history. I have similar views with another man, Sir William Gull, whose candidacy comes up as part of the Royal Conspiracy. Gull was a brilliant doctor who advanced the understanding of Bright's disease, paraplegia and anorexia nervosa, yet a Google search of his name comes up with pages of the possibility of him being a psychotic killer. It all seems a bit harsh, somehow. But not only did McNaughton include Druitt in a list of possible suspects, he saw him as the most likely. He wrote to Druitt, Kosminski and Ostrog, I enumerate the case of three men against whom the police held very reasonable suspicion. Personally, and after much careful and deliberate consideration, I am inclined to exonerate the last two. But I have always held strong opinions regarding number one, and the more I think the matter over, the stronger do these opinions become. The truth, however, will never be known, and did indeed at one time lie at the bottom of the Thames, if my conjectures be correct. Clearly Sir Melville's private information was stronger than he revealed, though it sounds suspiciously like garden-party tittle-tattle, rather than hard evidence. As for the final name on the list, that of Michael Ostrog, the evidence is equally weak. Born in Russia in 1833, Ostrog's criminal career is littered with convictions for petty theft under a litany of aliases. Despite McNaughton's notes, the only mention of violence occurs at his arrest in 1873, when he pulled a pistol on the arresting officers. Other than that, and his apparent madness, his crimes seem particularly minor. In 1887, he was arrested for stealing a metal tankard, and in 1898, some books. It's unlikely he will become a tankard thief, then a multiple mutilating murderer, and then a book purloiner. Not impossible, of course, and McNaughton and his peers may have spotted something in him, but, like Drew before him, his inclusion seems inexplicable. On the 18th of November 1888, Ostrog was sentenced to two years in jail for theft while in Paris. For him to be the murderer at Mary Kelly, he would have to have left London immediately, committed his crime, and be rushed through the courts in nine days. Questionable, I'd say. What is striking for McNaughton's list is the sheer variety of suspects. We have the insane poor Jew, that's insane and foreign, the mad doctor, insane, foreign, possibility of anatomical knowledge, and the toff, killed himself, insanity. They ticked all the boxes between them, though not individually. 
In later years, McNaughton would proudly state that he didn't use notes and relied heavily upon his memory. This may explain why he makes mistakes such as Druitt's age, at one point he gives his age as 41 but he's a decade younger, and career, and thus makes him an unreliable narrator of the time. Anderson and Swanson tell a frankly bizarre story that one does tend to back the other up, so though the police were under enormous pressure and scrutiny from all aspects of society, the whole thing looks a bit of a mess. As suggested before, the police had a thankless task in capturing the murderer. Homicides were rare, even though violence, domestic or otherwise, was not, and there were some cases in the Ripper file which may have not actually been murders. The deaths of Emma Elizabeth Smith and Rose Milet could have been accidental, if Smith was hiding an abortion site while another was committed as far off as Whitehall, and only included because it, it too was as bizarre and grotesque as the Ripper events. The Victorian murder was generally solved by way of establishing a link between the dead and the people they knew. To this day, most victims tend to have some sort of relationship with their murderer. It's therefore likely that in the case of Elizabeth Stride and Mary Kelly, their spouses with whom they'd argued would fall under immediate suspicion. Of course... The Ripper did not, as far as we know, have any relationship at all with his prey, which made arrest almost impossible as he worked alone, and DNA evidence, even fingerprinting, was not available at the time. So the Bobby on the Beat had a tough time, but their superiors seemed to have posted some very strange views, and this is typical as to the somewhat haywire nature of the investigation. Anderson, for all his achievements, was rather vain, and many believed that the witness at the police convalescent home was a fiction to cover up his inability to convict the Ripper. This would explain why nothing was made clear to McNaughton at the time. It's just possible that he concocted the whole story to calm the country in 1910, now that the murders were but a memory, and instilled confidence in both himself and the force. Maybe Swanson just wanted to back up his old friend and mentor. However, there was a man who seemed to be the perfect suspect. On the 12th of December 1888, a man known as David Cowan was admitted to the asylum at Colney Hatch. He was the same age as Aaron Kuzminski, but was, unlike him, extremely violent and psychotic. Furthermore, he died shortly after his incarceration, just as Anderson claimed. Martin Fido suggests that David Cohen was a catch-all term, for those whose names are difficult to pronounce or spell, such as the names John and Jane Doe are used in the US today for unidentified bodies. Martin considers that David Cohen was really Nathan Kaminsky for Whitechapel, and that a series of Chinese whispers led to Anderson and Swanson changing and normalising the name from Kaminsky to Kuzminsky. This is more than possible. Nathan lived in the area and was a bootmaker, a job incidentally, for which you have to wear a leather apron. What is especially suggestive is that Kaminsky had a great hatred of women, and disappeared from public record in his own name, just as David Cohen appeared. Personally, I've never really been interested in the suspects, but of all the theories, and there are 150 of them, this seems to be the most plausible. Though it does not make all 100% clear that he's the killer. For a start, Kaminsky spoke mostly Hebrew, while the witnesses, bogus or not, heard him say things like, You'll say anything but your prayers. Or, You will be alright for what I have told you. Though, as always, that last one comes with an enormous George Hutchinson-sized caveat. One thing is certain, though, they don't sound like the words of a raving madman. There is one more police suspect in the annals, though it did not come to light for many years after the murders. In 1913, a special branch official called John George Littlechild, the former head of special branch, wrote a letter to G.R. Sims, the journalist, about a police suspect. The letter came to light when it was discovered by historian and ripperologist Stuart Evans, and here it is in full. Dear Sir, 
I was pleased to receive your letter, which I shall put away in good company to read again. Perhaps some day, when old age overtakes me, and when, to revive memories of the past, may be a solace. Knowing the great interest you take in all matters criminal and abnormal, I am just going to inflict one more letter on you on the Ripper subject. Letters, as a rule, are only a nuisance when they call for a reply, but this does not need one. I will try and be brief. I have never heard of a Dr. D in connection with the Whitechapel murders, but amongst the suspects, and to my mind a very likely one, was a Dr. T, which sounds much like D. He was an American quack named Tumble D, and was at one time a frequent visitor to London, and on these occasions constantly brought under the notice of police, there being a large dossier concerning him at Scotland Yard. Although a psychopathia sexualis subject, he was not known as a sadist, which the murderer unquestionably was, but his feelings towards women were remarkable and bitter in the extreme, a fact on record. Tumblety was arrested at the time of the murders in connection with unnatural offences and charged at Marlborough Street, remanded on bail, jumped his bail and got away to Boulogne. He shortly left Boulogne and was never heard of afterwards. It was believed he committed suicide, but certain it is that from this time the Ripper murders came to an end. With regard to the term Jack the Ripper, it was generally believed at the yard that Tom Bullen of the Central News was the originator, but it is probable Moore, who was his chief, was the inventor. It was a smart piece of journalistic work. No journalist of my time got such privileges from Scotland Yard as Bullen. Mr James Munro, when Assistant Commissioner, and afterwards Commissioner, relied on his integrity. Poor Bullen occasionally took too much to drink, and I failed to see how he could help it knocking about so many hours and seeking favours from so many people to procure copy. One night, when Bullen had taken a few too many, he got early information of the death of Prince Bismarck, and instead of going to the office to report it, sent a laconic telegram, Bloody Bismarck is dead. On this, I believe, Mr Charles Moore fired him out. It is very strange how those given to contrary sexual instinct and degenerates are given to cruelty. Even Wilde used to like to be punched about. It may interest you if I give you an example of this cruelty in the case of the man Harry Thor, and this is authentic as I have the boy's statement. Thor was staying at the Carlton Hotel, and one day laid out a lot of sovereigns on his dressing table, then rang for a call boy on pretense of sending out a telegram. He made some excuse and went out of the room, and left the boy there and watched through the chink of the door. The unfortunate boy was tempted and took a sovereign from the pile, and Thor, returning to the room, charged him with stealing. The boy confessed when Thor asked whether he should send for the police or whether he should punish him himself. The boy, scared to death, consented to take the punishment from Thor, who then made him undress, strapped him to the foot of the bedstead, and thrashed him with a cane, drawing blood. He then made the boy get into a bath, in which he placed a quantity of salt. It seems incredible that such a thing could take place in any hotel, but it is a fact. This was in 1906. Now, pardon me, it is finished. Except that I knew Major Griffiths for many years. He probably got his information from Anderson, who only thought he knew. Faithfully yours, J.G. Littlechild. This was an enormous find. Before we even look at Dr. T, it's worth recording that final line again. He probably got his information from Anderson, who only thought he knew. Of course, Anderson claimed the opposite and stressed that the case was over, but Littlechild doesn't seem convinced. 
John George Littlechild was not directly involved with the Ripper murders. As head of Special Branch from 1883 to 1893, he was largely concerned with Fainian activity in the capital city, so he was aware of the Irish or Irish-American visitors with a history of political agitation, as well as their funding. The letter is written to the journalist G.R. Sims, who knew of the case intimately, having reported on it at the time. It was undoubtedly a reply to a missing letter, and it's probable that Dr. D refers to Druitt, though it's strange that the name means nothing to Littlechild. More importantly, there was a new name and suspect in the case. Not only that, the head of Special Branch painted him as a very likely suspect. As for Tumblety himself, it's debatable if there's a stranger character in the entire case. Born in Ireland in or around 1833, he made a living as a quack doctor, selling his own brand of medicine such as Tumblety's Pimple Destroyer. A flamboyant and boisterous egotist, he made an impression everywhere he went with his loud and gaudy clothes and enormous moustache. His claims became bolder and bolder. While in Boston, one of his patients died, allegedly with his remedies, and Tumblety was fortunate to escape prosecution. On the 5th of May, 1865, he was arrested for alleged complicity in the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, as he knew one of John Wilkes Booth's associates. Francis Tumblety was not a man who was afraid of publicity. But why would Scotland Yard consider him a suspect? Maybe this anecdote rang alarm bells. He invited a friend, Colonel Dunham, over to dinner one night when the following occurred. Someone asked why he had not invited some women to his dinner. His face instantly became as black as a thundercloud. He had a pack of cards in his hands, but he laid them down and said almost savagely, No, Colonel, I don't know any such cattle. And if I did, I would, as your friend, sooner give you a dose of quick poison than take you into such danger. He then broke into a homily on the sin and folly of dissipation, fiercely denounced all women and especially fallen women. He then invited us into his office where he illustrated his lecture, so to speak. One side of the room was entirely occupied by cases, outwardly resembling wardrobes. When the doors were opened, quite a museum was revealed. Tiers of shelves with glass jars and cases some round and some other square, filled with all sorts of anatomical specimens. The doctor placed on a table a dozen or more jars containing, as he said, the matrices of every class of women. Nearly a half of one of these cases was occupied exclusively with these specimens. Not long after this, the doctor was in my room when my lieutenant colonel came in and commenced expatiating on the charms of a certain woman. In a moment, the doctor was lecturing him and denouncing women. When he was asked why he hated women, he said that when quite a young man, he fell desperately in love with a pretty girl who promised to reciprocate his affection. After a brief courtship, he married her. The honeymoon was over when he noticed a disposition on the part of his wife to flirt with other men. He remonstrated, she kissed him, called him a dear jealous fool, and he believed her. Happening one day to pass in a cab through the worst part of the town, he saw his wife and a man enter a gloomy looking house. Then he learned that before her marriage, his wife had been an inmate of that and many similar houses. Then he gave up all womankind. This was eerily reminiscent of Coroner Wynne Baxter's comments at the Annie Chapman inquest when he spoke of an American doctor pestering pathology labs to buy uteruses. Maybe an American wasn't buying them at all. Maybe he was taking them. On the 7th of November 1888, Francis Tumblety was arrested for gross indecency, which usually meant a homosexual act. 
He was bailed for an enormous sum of £300, but chose to run from the law and went back to America via France on the 24th of November under the pseudonym of Frank Townsend. Scotland Yard went so far as sending Inspector Walter Andrews to New York to track him down. For their part, the New York City police responded to a press report about him being the Ripper by stating, There is no proof of his complicity in the Whitechapel murders, and the crime for which he is under bond in London is not extraditable. And Andrews returned home alone. Tumblety, not being a man to lay low, published a pamphlet called Dr. Francis Tumblety, Sketch of the Life of the Gifted, Eccentric and Well-Famed Physician, where he attacked all and sundry about his trying gear. Was he the Ripper? Well, George Hutchison says that he saw a flamboyantly dressed man talking to Mary Kelly, and there were rumours that he may have been Mrs Kerr's lodger at 22 Batty Street. Briefly, she claimed that on the night of the double event, a guest had given her a shirt to wash as he was going away for a while. It had blood on the sleeves. The story became the basis of Alfred Hitchcock's The Lodger. Incidentally, Batty Street is the next road along from Burner Street, and 22 is a few doors away from Israel Lipsky's house at number 16. But there are also many points against him. Though his moustache was not as large in 1888 as it was about to become, it would be simple to pick out such an ostentatiously dressed man amongst the desperate people of Whitechapel. He was also roughly 55 years old at the time, and though Mrs Long hinted that her suspect was over 40, the majority of witnesses speak of a man between 25 and 35. Tumblety was also quite tall for the times, at 5 foot 10, while the witness report tends to have him between 5 foot 5 and 5 foot 7. Mrs Long said he was only a little taller than his victim, and Andy Chapman was only 5 foot tall. As with other suspects, there's no history of violence, and again, it seems unfair to malign a man purely for his eccentricities, dress sense and sexuality. In any case, those are the men who the police proposed as suspects, or the actual Ripper himself. As I said before, every argument is valid, so I hope I've given you the facts. Ripperology does come with its own petty squabbles and arguments from time to time, so, rule conspiracy aside, I'll just try to give you the facts, the for and against and let you decide. <laughs>